Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearance. Tell us then, what, what you think is, what you think, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me that coin for the tax, for the tax. And, and they brought him a Daenerys. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, "Are Caesar's and are are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's?" When they heard it, they marvelled and and they left and they left him and went away. The same day, the same day the Sadducees came to him, who who say there is no resurrection in that. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher Moses said, A man dies having no children. His brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore... Of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is He is the God of the dead, but of the He is not of the God of dead, but of the living. And when the and the, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teachings. But when the Pharisees heard that they had found the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall, love your, you shall love your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is great, and this is great, the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathering together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They asked him, the son of, they asked him, the son of David. Then he said, then, then said to him, the son of David. He, he said to them, how is it then the, that David in the spirit called him Lord saying, the Lord, the Lord said to the Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand unto um, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to, quest, to ask him any more questions.
the old TV show Password was the first game show to begin the trend of including a lightning round. Now, a lightning round was usually played at the very end of the game, and it was used to determine the winner. And usually there was a series of rapid-fire questions asked and answered within a given time limit. And friends, this section of Matthew, we've entered Jesus' lightning round with the Pharisees. We find a series of questions asked and answered in this final time as he approaches the cross. And we've noted that these are not honest questions. Verse 15, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. These people have come in this rapid fire lightning round, not seeking answers, but accusations. In other words, go ahead, Samuel. It's a trap. When I told my family what I was preaching, they said, come on, you got to put Admiral Akbar up there. It is a trap because they have come and they're not seeking truth. They're seeking to trap Jesus. And the questioning begins in verses 15 through 22 with politics. Because, no surprise, politics then was just as divisive as politics today. The religious leaders, we hear them butter Jesus up in verse 16, saying all kinds of nice things about him. And then they pull the pin and toss a live grenade to him in verse 17. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? In the wake of the most recent mass shooting, should we have an assault rifle ban? Whose fault is the crisis at our southern border and what should we do about it? What's the line between religious freedom and discrimination when it comes to pronoun use or baking a wedding cake? Did you feel the temperature in the room rise? And it would have risen just as much when the Pharisees asked him this question. Do you think it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This was a loaded question. You see, Israel at the time was an occupied and oppressed territory. It was occupied and oppressed by Rome, and Rome imposed significant taxation upon the people. It was a tribute that was to be paid to the emperor, to Caesar. And the Israelite people despised Rome and their taxation. So to say, yes, we should pay taxes to Rome, would have angered and alienated the Jewish people who resented Rome, and they were awaiting a Messiah who was going to overthrow Rome and deliver them. But if they said, no, you shouldn't pay the tax, then his adversaries could have simply claimed treason, rebellion, and turned him over to the Romans, and they would have taken care of him. So either way, the Pharisees would have gotten exactly what they wanted. Either Jesus was going to be a traitor to Israel or a traitor to Rome. And either way, the Pharisees had him. But we witnessed Jesus, but we witnessed Jesus masterfully set off the trap without getting caught. In verse 19, he calls for a denarius because, like all preachers, he didn't have a lot of money. So he asked somebody else for a denarius, which was about one day's wage. And it was the exact amount of the annual Roman tax. And holding up the coin, Jesus asks in verse 20, whose likeness and inscription is this? And on the denarius was a portrait of Emperor Tiberius and the Latin inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine 
Augustus. So the coin was actually a graven image. It was a graven image that declared Caesar to be God. It was, in fact, a portable idol that propagated Roman pagan ideology. Now, notice, again, Jesus doesn't carry one of these idols in his pocket, but his opponents apparently carry them with them. And by carrying this coinage, Jesus' adversaries were tacitly acknowledging Caesar's authority and thus their obligation to pay the tax. You can take that down off the screen, Samuel. So by producing the coin, Jesus' opponents have exposed that they themselves are already paying the tax and that they themselves implicitly recognize the authority of Caesar. Because again, this is clearly just a trap. And Jesus springs the trap in Matthew 22, verse 21. He says, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, Jesus expertly, he he sidesteps the whole issue. He says, the coin bears Caesar's image, so it clearly belongs to him. So let Caesar have his little idols, but give to God what belongs to him. And friends, what bears God's image? The coin bears Caesar's image, but what bears God's image? Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. My friends, humanity is created in the image of God because we belong to him. In fact, Caesar himself actually bore God's image. So despite his own claims to divinity, Caesar also belonged to God. So Caesar may have could lay claim to coins that bore his image, but only God can lay claim to all of humanity that bears his image. You may owe Caesar taxes, but you owe God your very being. What Caesar is due is only a tiny little subset of that which belongs to God. Because even then, it still belongs to God. So not only does Jesus spring the trap without getting caught, he challenges his opponents. He says, hey, just as clearly as this coin bears Caesar's image, you bear God's image. So why do you resist giving yourself to God? Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. But render to God the things that are God's. And friends, how are you and I guilty in our own lives of playing games with God? the way that they were playing games. How are we avoiding giving ourselves fully and completely to God? To the God whose image we bear and to whom we belong. And I just want to note here that when we listen to Jesus' response about this, he's clearly more concerned with religious fidelity than political power. Church, let us never allow the quest for Caesar's power or Caesar's favor to overshadow our quest for the Lord's favor. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Now, unlike Jesus and his contemporaries, we live in a democracy and we have a unique opportunity to participate in and influence our government and its laws. And we should. We should because politics affects policies and policies affect people. 
And so if we love people, we must consider and be involved in politics. However, even as we do, we need to remember we give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. Because as one commentator observed, once you stop rendering to God what's God's and start to render it to Caesar, you muddy up the religious domain. And then all sorts of things that shouldn't be religious become religious. And isn't it amazing how today's politics have taken on an almost religious fervor? Because we've muddied the water. We've muddied the water. All sort of things that shouldn't be religious have become almost religious because we render to Caesar what should be God's. Church, there never has been and there never will be a Savior who climbs Capitol Hill. The man who sits in the president's chair right now is no Savior, but neither was his predecessor, and neither will be the one who comes after him. The uncritical quest for Caesar's power or Caesar's favor will compromise your allegiance to Christ's kingdom because the kingdom of the lamb is distinct from the kingdom of the elephant or the kingdom of the donkey. Now, friends, make no mistake. There are real differences in the positions, the policies, and the stated platforms of each political party. And neither party is perfect, nor is either party a paragon of virtue. In one sense, you are always going to be voting for the lesser of two evils. But that is not to say that one party or candidate might not be further from, or a better reflection of, the priorities of Christ's kingdom. But church, even as we campaign and as we vote, be careful and remember that we are simply rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but we must render unto God what is God's. And we and all things ultimately belong to him. Well, you see, the the Pharisees, they came up and they took their swipe at Jesus and they failed. And so now the Sadducees see this and they go, okay, well, this is our turn. And we find in verses 23 through 33, the Sadducees step up. Now, the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the Pharisees were mostly from amongst the common people. There were a lot of lay people who were Pharisees. But the Sadducees, the Sadducees, these were property-owning, urban-class people. They, they were numerically small, but they had an outsized political influence because of their wealth. And they were sympathetic to Rome because they got some of their power and wealth from Rome. But they were not very popular with the people. But most importantly, the Sadducees, they rejected all the oral law and the traditions that the Pharisees held to. And the Sadducees held exclusively to the authority of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses. And as such, there were doctrines that the Pharisees, who we've had a lot of interactions with, there were doctrines the Pharisees held that the Sadducees did not. For example, we hear in verse 23 of this passage that the Sadducees rejected the doctrine of the resurrection. And we need to understand that, otherwise this whole passage doesn't make any sense. So because they only held to the authority of the five books of Moses, They rejected the doctrine of the resurrection. And friends, I I, I just want to point out here with the Sadducees, if anyone comes up to you and goes, oh, yeah, all that religious stuff, you know, ancient people, they were all a bunch of superstitious simpletons. The Sadducees were religious people, but they were strict materialists. They didn't believe in angels or demons or resurrection or afterlife or even the spiritual world. And so we find they rejected the doctrine of the resurrection. 
And so it becomes obvious that the question they're asking and the little story they tell about resurrection is all just a trap because they don't believe any of it. In fact, the absurd little story that they tell about marriage and resurrection might have even been a standing joke that they used to embarrass Pharisees or anyone who did believe in a resurrection. So what they're referring to is in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 22, verses 5 through 10, if a, mar- if a man married a woman and then he died without producing an heir, the dead man's brother was supposed to marry the woman and produce an heir for his brother who would bear his brother's name and receive his brother's inheritance, thus protecting the family line and protecting the family inheritance. And so in this little story, what do we find? We find seven brothers, seven marriages, seven deaths, and no heir. And so it sets up the trap. It sets up the punchline in verse 28. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And the Sadducees were kind of smug. They they were convinced that this little dilemma was airtight and that it locked up and showed the lack of logic in the idea of a resurrection. But what we see Jesus do here, he springs the trap without getting caught in it. Jesus pushes back in verse 29. He says, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. If I could summarize that, you don't know what you're talking about. You just don't get it. Friends, it is possible to be close to God and yet so far away. Here are men who were so close to the Scripture, at least claimed to be, and yet they didn't understand it and they completely denied the power of God. Let us never become like that. Jesus says to the Sadducees, here you are acting all superior to others. You're mocking them with your little story like they're the ones who don't get it. You're the ones who don't get it. And Jesus points out that the resurrected world, the age to come, is going to be similar, but yet dissimilar from this age. He says the moral and the social order in the resurrection will not simply just be an extension of this life. The resurrected life won't be exactly like it is today. And relationships in the new age will not be exactly as they are in this age. Now, again, he's not here giving us a complete theology of marriage at the resurrection or trying to answer all of our curiosities about what does that mean. But he's making clear that while marriage, which is very, very good, is given only for this age and not for eternity. So again, Jesus sidesteps the trap, and then he shows to the Sadducees exactly why they're wrong, and he proves it using an authority that they agree to. Remember, they hold the authority of the five books of Moses. So he quotes, the book of Exodus, the second book. And he says, he quoting Exodus 3, 6, he says that after their deaths, God spoke of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as if they were still alive, even though they were dead. Because God is the God of the living and not of the dead. So he goes right there in the law of Moses, which you hold to be authoritative, it proves that there must be life after death because God is the God of the living. And not only is he the God of the living, he, that God, will bring resurrection. So the joke's actually on you, Sadducees. You act like others don't understand. But it's you who don't understand. And friends, there's much that we don't fully understand about the resurrection. 
But Jesus makes abundantly clear that there will be a resurrection. And friends, that's the gospel. That is the good news. Because do you feel this world is broken? We do. Just like we sang. This world is broken. It is fallen. There are mass shootings. There are wars. There's human trafficking. There's sexual confusion. There's pandemics, cancer, drug addiction. There's broken relationships, broken systems, a broken environment, broken bodies. But do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. We don't just need a miracle. We don't just need a temporary band-aid to stop the bleeding. We need to be made new. We need all the sad things to come untrue. We need a resurrection. And what the Sadducees mocked here, we make our own by faith. We may not understand everything about the resurrection, but friends, we hope for one. That is our hope. And friends, if you too need this hope, if you want this hope to become your hope, I would love to talk to you after the service or for you to come talk up front with any of the people that are here. Because Jesus tells us there will be a resurrection and all will be made new. The question is, will you rise to death or to judgment? And in verses 34 through 40, it says the Pharisees saw the Sadducees. Well, they've been silenced, so it's like a tag team. They tagged back into the ring to take another swipe at Jesus. And one of the teachers of the law invites Jesus to weigh in on the most popular theological debate of the day. Verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, the Jewish rabbis had identified 613 individual statutes in the law. And in Jesus' day, they spent time trying to figure out what were the heavy or the great statutes and the light or the little commandments. Now, some would have said, well, the great law is the law of circumcision. Or the great law is the law of the Sabbath. Or the great law is the law of sacrifice. And experts in the law would spend their days debating and ranking the importance of all the commands. And they invite Jesus to weigh in on the debate. Now Jesus' response actually wouldn't have surprised anyone. He starts by quoting from the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Shema, O Israel, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And to this very day, friends, observant Jews recite the Shema twice a day. It's the first words that you declare when you wake in the morning. And they're the final words that you declare in the evening before going to bed. The Shema is considered to be the most important part of the Jewish prayer service. So these words are central to Jewish prayer, practice, and understanding. It's really the most fundamental of all of Israel's creeds. So when Jesus begins with the Shema, no one would have been surprised. And although they only asked Jesus for the great commandment, Jesus added a second one as well. In verse 39, He's quoting Leviticus 19.18. It says, The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love God. Love your neighbor. And Jesus says this summarizes all of the law and the prophets. And we find this same idea repeated multiple times throughout the New Testament. 
For example, the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, verse 9, For if the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So again, these two commandments, love God, love your neighbor, sum up all of the law and the prophets. And friends, while there's absolutely no surprise to Jesus' declaration here, let's consider for a moment some clarification, especially clarification to the question of what does love mean? What does love mean? Because first, when we understand loving God, friends, loving God means obedience to God. Jesus makes clear multiple times throughout his ministry, and especially here in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, friends, none of us, none of us perfectly or consistently keeps all of God's commandments. However, Jesus is saying, no one who truly loves me will choose to knowingly and willfully continue in violation of God's commandments. Now, last Wednesday was Valentine's Day. And if that's coming as a surprise to you, husbands, you now know why your wife's been mad at you all week long. Last Wednesday was Valentine's Day. Now imagine if for Valentine's Day, a wife presented her husband with an extravagant gift, a brand new Corvette. And her husband is overwhelmed by his wife's loving gesture. And he asks her, but where did you get the money for this car? And she answers, well, I've been prostituting myself out to get the money for the car. Friends, a husband desires his wife's faithfulness to him more than a great expression. And God's the same way. Even if our expressions of love for God are big and bold, we can't claim we truly love God if we're knowingly and willfully continuing to choose to live unfaithfully to Him and violating His will. Mark records this encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. And we, he And we hear the Pharisee respond to Jesus' answer in Mark chapter 12, verse 33. And to love God with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It's more than offering, more than sacrifice. Friends, the Lord is not impressed with extravagant offerings and sacrifices and gifts if we're choosing to willfully and consciously live in willful disobedience and unfaithfulness to Him. To love God is to seek to obey God. And to repent when we find out that we are in disobedience to what He desires. Because again, none of us loves and obeys God perfectly, but there's always grace. There is always grace. The gospel. So there's always repentance and forgiveness. So even if it is faltering and imperfect, are you moving towards greater faithfulness and obedience? Are you growing in love for God? 
And secondly, we need to understand, friends, these two commandments reveal why good people will not go to heaven apart from God. Friends, even if you love your neighbor truly and sacrificially, which many humanitarians throughout history have, success at the second commandment can never make up for ignoring the first commandment. Success in in the second commandment can never make up for ignoring the first commandment. Jesus says the first and the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God. And while your neighbor, loving your neighbor is important, friends, it's insufficient. Because love for God is the first and the greatest commandment. And in fact, it's only from our love for and relationship with God that we're actually empowered to truly love our neighbor and more than our neighbors to even love our enemies. So church, beware of any social gospel that emphasizes a love for neighbor but neglects a love for and obedience to God. We must begin with God for he is the source from which will flow our love for neighbors. So love for neighbor is good, but friends, love for neighbor alone cannot save. The social gospel is no gospel at all. And the third and the final clarification is that love of neighbor does not mean affirming everything about your neighbor. The Apostle Paul offers us what is the most thorough definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. And he says of love of neighbor, right in the middle of that definition, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Friends, love does not affirm or accept unrighteousness or lies. Because we know that evil and lies always destroy. So love will not uncritically accept if the beloved wants to make regular use of illicit drugs. Love will not affirm and accept if the beloved claims that her body is wrong and she wants to starve herself to become thinner or pursue surgeries to alter her God-given identity. It is not loving to uncritically accept the beloved's embrace of harmful philosophies like white supremacy or to affirm the beloved's desire to pursue an abusive relationship. You can love someone and believe that they're wrong. You can love someone and challenge their ideas. You can love someone and question their desires. You can love someone and tell them that you believe their behavior is sinful and destructive because love will not affirm or accept that which will harm the beloved in body, heart, or soul. Love will not lie to the beloved for love does not rejoice in unrighteousness but only rejoices in truth. So, friends, we are called to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And this passage closes with one last question. But this is where Jesus turns the tables and he says, "Okay, enough of you asking me. It's time for me to ask you in verses 41 through 46. He lays his own theological trap, which the leaders fall right into. Everyone agreed the coming Messiah would be a son, a descendant of King David. And so Jesus quotes King David himself from Psalm 110 and says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus says, hey, David 
calls the coming Messiah my Lord. And in that culture, friends, never would a son call his father, I'm sorry, never would a father call his son my Lord because the father was always considered greater. So Jesus says, how is it possible that the Messiah could be David's son, his descendant, and yet be greater than David? Because David clearly calls him greater by calling him my Lord. And you see, Jesus is doing two things here. Number one, Jesus is implying that the promised Messiah would be more than just a human descendant, which he was. But the second thing, Jesus is saying so long ago, so long ago, David recognized and showed greater respect to the coming Messiah than you all have today. Jesus says long ago, without all of the signs and wonders and evidence that you all have seen, King David understood just a little bit and he acted and responded in respect and acceptance. Yet you all, for all that you've seen, you continue to resist me. Friends, hardened hearts will stubbornly refuse even the most obvious of signs. But receptive hearts can see the truth from even a long distance away, like King David did, and submit themselves to that truth. And it leaves the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it leaves us with the question, how's my heart? When I look upon Jesus, what do I see? When I look upon Jesus, how will I respond? Friends, when you ask questions of Jesus, are you coming for answers? Or are you just looking for arguments? Do you come to Jesus open to receiving him or simply looking for some more reasons to reject him? For all of the questions that are asked in today's passage, you and I must answer one question. How will you now respond to this Jesus? Let's pray. Father, move our hearts. Move our hearts to respond to Jesus and to respond rightly. We confess that we struggle. We struggle to bow our knees. We struggle to open our hearts. So help us now in our weakness. Help us, Father, to come. And where there is hardness, soften us where there is anger, bring us peace. Where there is resistance, help us to bow that we might receive the greatest of gifts, the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.